Thank you, Andrew, and it's an honor to be here with you. Um, when I was a student a couple of years ago uh, at the University of Toronto, uh, I had the privilege of attending the last church that Dr. A.W. Tozer pastored before he died. And Dr. Tozer made this statement, a frightened world needs a fearless church. And uh, I want to say to you this morning that there's only one man controlling the course of history. And I'll give you a clue. He isn't sitting in the Kremlin. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Lord of the beginning of history. I am the Lord of the end of history. And I am the Lord of everything in between. And that is my confidence this morning as I look at the news, uh, the wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilence, all that the world has been through the last couple of years, Jesus is still on the throne. And Martin Luther said, if I knew the Lord was going to return tomorrow, I would plant an oak tree today. And in these wonderful uh, babies that we've dedicated this morning, they are the oak trees that are being planted for the kingdom of God to flourish and to expand. As Jesus did say, and I teach a fair bit in the area of eschatology or end times, but Jesus did say that he wouldn't return until the gospel of the kingdom had gone to every nation or every people group. So by my understanding, that hasn't quite happened yet. So we need to plant a few more oak trees and take possession because God is in the business of restoring the Garden of Eden. And uh, we are the beginning of that process of what God is doing in the earth. And, you know, God has a problem. He thinks he's God. <laughs> he says, I know that's deep. You'll get it in a minute. Uh, but God will not finish his program until it's done and done properly. And you and I have the great privilege this morning of being part of that fearless church, which is speaking to a frightened world. And I just want to say lastly, this is my introduction, doesn't count in my however many minutes, which I didn't check anyway. But uh, uh, if you're here this morning and you have never met Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, is the man that I'm talking about, I invite you to have a personal encounter with him. Uh, this morning, before you leave this building, it will change your life. So if you're impacted, uh, and if you're in that place of being on the fearful side, and you want to be a person who has confidence in life and who knows where your life is going, not only now, but you have confidence that if you die today, that you would be instantly translated into the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you don't have that confidence, you, you can get it this morning by talking to somebody that you came with, somebody that you know, Pastor Andrew, or somebody here, and they will help you. They will introduce you to this amazing man, Jesus Christ, who is controlling the course of history. I think it's, it's just the best thing to be a Christian. Well, now, my, now the clock can begin. Okay. Uh, 
where it'll end, we'll see. Uh, Andrew's been talking about uh, bring me another jar and all that God wants to do in our lives and what he wants to equip us with. And I want to hopefully provide a uh, conclusion to that series this morning uh, by talking about the glory of God. It's, wherever we begin in life, uh, where we want to end is in the glory of God. So ask the question, what is the glory of God? And how do we encounter the glory of God today? And what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? And uh, the, the jars of oil that the widow uh, accumulated, um, the oil obviously represents, for any of you that know biblical symbolism, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And God is in the process of accumulating a reservoir of the Holy Spirit for us to move ahead in. And where the Holy Spirit leads us, where is in a manifest, where the Holy Spirit is leading us is with all these jars of oil, is into a manifestation of the glory of God on earth. Because God is determined to have one thing uh, accomplished, and that is that He Himself be glorified. And you know, for any of us, if we if we took that as a, a personal goal, that would be incredibly self-centered. But for God to be glorified means for the rest of the world to be blessed. Because when God is truly glorified in this world, creation attains the purpose for which it, it was made. When you glorify God in your life and manifest the glory of God, that's what you were created for. And when God is glorified, it is the place of greatest joy for you also. So it's a win-win situation. Anyway, if we want to answer the question, what is the glory of God? We need to go back to the Old Testament. Now, the Hebrew word for glory is the word kavoth. And the root meaning of that word is a heaviness or a weight. And it came to mean a wealth, an honor, or a splendor, something with real substance. And in the Old Testament, the main use of the word glory is in reference to God. Because who has more substance or weight or honor or splendor than God himself? And so when we read through the Old Testament, we see that the glory of God appears first in the midst of the cloud and fire, which led the people through the wilderness. And that cloud of glory manifested. It rested on Mount Sinai. That's where Moses saw the glory of God in the midst of the cloud. And, uh, and then the glory of God appeared uh, in the tabernacle, especially at the hour of sacrifice. And later in Old Testament days, prophets like Isaiah, and Ezekiel also witnessed the supernatural manifestation of the glory of God. But the concept of the glory of God goes beyond these merely physical manifestations into something that is wider and deeper, something which comes to be equated with the character of God himself. So that the psalmist cries out, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And also declare his glory among the nations, his works among all peoples. And Isaiah prophesies that the glory of the Lord one day is going to rise upon the people of God. 
so that even as the glory manifested physically on Mount Sinai or at the tabernacle, a day is coming that Isaiah is pointing to when in some way that was inexplicable to him, he was looking forward, trying to glimpse what it meant. But what God showed him was that this glory in, in a way that he couldn't comprehend is going to rise upon all of God's people. And in that day, a voice is going to come crying in the wilderness, Isaiah said, and the glory of God will be revealed. That is, that is all the prophetic background in the Old Testament. And that leads us up to the first chapter of John's Gospel. And some of these scripture verses are open. You know, I never trust, I always have a lapse of faith when it comes to whether what's going on in the screen behind me. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and I see a prophetic word coming saying, hold the mic close. Okay. <laughs> it's obviously I haven't been. You know these sound people control everything. <laughs> it's a spirit of control. <laughs> uh, I apologize. I hope you can all hear me. Oh, sheesh. I'm getting. Uh, all right. Now, and the word became flesh. And dwell among us. Yep. Oh, ye of little faith. He says to himself. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. So John is thinking here in these verses of Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Now, now we know that because John says he's seen the glory. If you go back to the Old Testament... Nobody saw the glory of God in the way that Moses did. So if, if you talked to a Jewish person at the time of Jesus then and said you'd seen the glory, they would be thinking of only one thing. That was Moses going up Mount Sinai. That was the glory of God. And so yet John, writing his gospel, says he's seen it also. How can that be? He was never there at Mount Sinai. And then he goes on to describe Jesus in this text in John chapter 1 in very specific terms. It says, he's full of grace and truth. Now, in the encounter that Moses had at Mount Sinai, that's what, if, you, if, if, if somebody said, I've seen the glory, that's what they would be thinking of. So John is taking us right back to Exodus chapter 34, right here in this verse, um, with his statement. And so in that encounter in Exodus 34 with Moses on Mount Sinai, the Lord re revealed himself to Moses as the one abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, if you translate the Hebrew words for love and faithfulness into Greek, it comes out as grace and truth. And so John is saying, even as Moses went up Mount Sinai and encountered Yahweh, who was abounding in love and faithfulness, so now this same God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Moses saw the glory of God, and God revealed himself as grace and truth. And John says, I also have seen the glory of God, and 
Jesus revealed himself as grace and truth. So now the unprecedented encounter of Moses with God on Mount Sinai, in that moment the covenant with God's people was forged, the people of God were set apart. Somehow that history-changing moment is being repeated. Think about the significance of what John is saying. We have seen the glory The glory was the kavod, it was the manifest presence of Almighty God. It was that which Moses witnessed, it was that which no person can see and live. How how could John have seen this glory when he wasn't on Mount Sinai and saw no cloud? The answer is clear, because he saw Jesus. I don't know how anyone in their right mind could argue that the Bible does not teach the divinity of Jesus Christ. The glory manifest in a cloud on Mount Sinai, which no one could approach but Moses on pain of death, has been made flesh. Now, this God, think about it for a minute. This God, unapproachable, on pain of death, surrounded by a cloud of glory on a mountain shaking with fire and earthquake. Now this God turns up on earth, walking the streets of Jerusalem. And... And everybody's seeing him and not dying. And in fact, the glory is touching people, even touching the unclean. And instead of uh, Jesus being made unclean as he touches the unclean people, the unclean people are made clean as the glory of God touches them. It's extraordinary. On Mount Sinai, the glory of God appeared. The word was handed over in the form of the two uh, tablets containing the copies of the covenant. But now the glory of God appears in the form of a man. And the spoken word of God and the man become inseparable such that he can be described himself as the word of God. Everything that he says, he speaks directly from God because he is God. He doesn't have to hand over tablets to somebody. The word he's speaking is the word of God because the man who's speaking is God. And John says even more. I'm still in this same verse. He says the word dwelt among us. Now that is an absolutely loaded word. Because it goes back to the Hebrew verb which refers specifically to God dwelling in the tabernacle. So what John is saying is the presence of Jesus on earth was just exactly like the presence of God in the tabernacle. And if you turn the Hebrew verb to dwell into a noun, you get the word Shekinah, which was the cloud of glory in which God dwelt. And now this glory cloud is walking around the streets of Jerusalem. And yet the religious people are so blinded they can't see it. So just to sum this part up, John is saying three things. He's saying the God who appeared on Mount Sinai has appeared in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Number two, the entire character of God has revealed on Mount Sinai, his mercy and faithfulness are embodied in the person of Jesus. Number three, the Shekinah glory of God on Mount Sinai was manifest in the person of Jesus. That's what he's saying in this one verse. That's extraordinary. 
So the question arises, why couldn't these religious Jewish people, especially the intelligentsia, the clergy, the leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and so on, why couldn't they see the glory when it was right in front of them? Now we'll skip to the next scripture because Paul explains the reason why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And if I read through verses 7 to 10, you'll find that he uses the word glory an awful lot. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters and stone, that's Moses, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses. And if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He's got glory on the brain. There's a lot of glory in this text. Now, why the Jews couldn't see the glory in front of them is explained. I'm still here in 2 Corinthians 3, and in faith I'm pronouncing that the words will be behind me on the screen. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the problem the Jewish people had was they could not understand the true meaning of the law. Their hearts and minds were blinded to everything Moses and the prophets had said about Jesus. The reason they couldn't understand is they did not have the Holy Spirit. And Paul is now explaining this to these Corinthian people. And just like John, he's taking them back to Exodus 34. So just like John 1 and 14 takes us back to Exodus 34, Moses on the mountain, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 takes us back to the same scripture, Exodus 34, and the manifestation of the glory of God. Now Exodus states that whenever Moses went into the presence of the glory, he removed his veil until he came out, and then he put a veil on so that no one could see the glory that was manifest in his face. And Paul now uses the example of Moses' veil to explain that this veil still prevents the Jews from seeing the glory. And not the glory of Sinai, but now the glory of Jesus. But he says, whenever a person enters the presence of the Lord, whenever a person is saved and encounters Jesus, and like I said, if you haven't encountered Jesus yet, this, there's lots of opportunity for you to do that right here this morning. But whenever a person encounters Jesus, that veil is permanently removed. Now, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So next he explains that the God who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai manifests himself to believers as the Holy Spirit. The Lord is Yahweh. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, if you think about it for a minute, on Mount Sinai, the glory of God is manifested as God the Father. In the streets of Jerusalem, the glory of God is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, in Christian believers, the glory of God is manifested as the Holy Spirit. 
So don't tell me the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. This is right there in front of you. And where the glory comes, there comes freedom. I've just written a book on it. Uh, that's not an advertisement. Well, maybe it is an advertisement anyway. Uh, freedom is freedom from the power of sin. It's freedom from the condemnation of the law. It's freedom to live life as it was meant to be lived. Freedom to be in fellowship with the living God. The release of the Spirit brings freedom... And it brings the manifestation of the glory. And when the glory of God is released in us, the Holy Spirit fills us, He empowers us, and He sets us free. And folks, if we understand the empowering of the Holy Spirit only in relation to the gifts of the Spirit and charismatic manifestations, we've only scratched the surface of the work of the Holy Spirit. When the glory comes and the Spirit descends, the purpose of God is far more than prophecies and spiritual gifts. What He is intending to do is to recreate us as entirely new people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings freedom. And yeah, it's a process. None of us is there yet. And yes, it won't be complete until we see Jesus face to face. And yes, we're all far from perfect. But how often do we fail to take a hold of the truth of the statement that in Christ we are truly a new creation? In us, the first fruits of the Spirit are made manifest. The old person, the old man, the old woman has died. And the new has come. And that's what it means when it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he continues, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face. Now here's the difference between Moses and Christian believers. Exodus states that Moses alone went into the presence of the Lord. And he took the veil off until he left the tent. And then he put it back on again. But now Paul tells us that whenever any Christian believer encounters the same presence of the Lord, the veil is removed. So under the old covenant, only one man experienced the glory of God that way. And the glory was shielded from the rest of the people. But now it says, it says every believer, it says here, and we all, and we all, and we all enter the glory. And we do so, it says, with unveiled face. Now, the word unveiled in Greek is what we call, there's a heavy anointing on this coming, it's what we call a perfect participle. And the significance of the perfect participle is, it's the veil has been removed once and for all, and the condition is irreversible. Once you enter the presence of the Lord, once you enter the glory, you can't leave it. You'll never go back. And Paul knew what he was speaking of. He entered the glory uh, in the straight street in the city of Damascus. The scales fell off, the veil fell away, and he entered the glory and he never left it. 
We all with unveiled face. If you know Christ this morning, the veil that separated you from God, the veil that separated you from the glory has been ripped away. You've entered the glory even if you didn't realize it. You may have looked at the mirror this morning when you got up and you didn't see much of the glory. Well, you just need to have your eyes fastened on spiritual realities and not what you see physically in front of you. Because that which is transient, that which is physical, Paul says, is fading away. It's deteriorating day by day. But that which in us, which is eternal, that in us within us, which is of God, is increasing and expanding and deepening. And one day, it's going to translate you and me into the immediate presence of Almighty God. That's the destiny that we have. Next, he says, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all with unveiled face. So we've, we've had the veil ripped away once and for all. It's an irreversible condition. And the next thing it says is beholding the glory of the Lord. The picture here is of somebody beholding an image in a mirror. And for ancient writers, the mirror was a figure of speech that signified gaining a deeper clarity or understanding. Now, here's some more exciting News. If entering the glory is a once and for all experience, that's the perfect participle, beholding is a present participle. You, you never expected to come to church learning Greek grammar, did you? Uh, but the significance of this is it's a continuous, present, ongoing activity. So you enter the glory when you receive Christ. But to behold the glory is something you do every day. Every day. Every day you gain clarity. More clarity. Every day you gain more understanding. Every day you come deeper into God's presence and understand things better than you did before. We're all on a journey. Don't compare your journey with the person sitting beside you. That's irrelevant. Just know that if you're a step further ahead on the journey today than you were yesterday, you're heading in the right direction. And that's good enough. I remember once we had been through a, a church split, uh, and I was so discouraged that I, I, could, I was putting the garbage out one morning, and I thought, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway. I was so down, and I just heard God saying, put one foot ahead of another. It was very deep. And somehow I got to the end of the driveway, put the garbage out, and things began to turn around. You know, it, God meets us in the dirt and dust and disappointment of life. And some of you have been through a lot of pain and suffering and disappointment. The glory is manifest just as much there as it is in the high moments. How many of you know that when you grow in Christ, the times you grow mo most in Christ are the times that are toughest in your life? Not the times that are easiest because that's when you come into a greater dependency on Him. That's when you open the door of your stubborn heart and decide, having tried to do everything that you knew how to do and it failed, that you're going to allow Jesus to come in and do it instead. And it's hard, but God will, is faithful. We're on a journey further and further into the glory, further and further into the Spirit, further and further into those jars of oil, Further and further into the transformed life. Further and further into freedom. 
And the more you behold Christ, the more clarity you get about God. The more you behold Christ, the closer you are to God. The more you behold Christ, the more you can exercise your freedom. And as you think about Christ, and as you pray to Christ, and as you read about Christ in the Bible, and as you fellowship with Christ and His people, as your life becomes more focused on Him, your understanding will increase, your knowledge of Him will increase, your experience of the glory and of the Spirit will grow stronger and stronger. And here's the result of it. Still in the same verse, 18. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The glory has come to us. The glory is within us. That's what it says. Uh, The image, here he's speaking of, into which we're being transformed by the Spirit, is Christ. Christ himself is the perfect image of God. So ongoing beholding of Christ means ongoing transformation. Being transformed, that's also in the present continuous. It's a daily journey. It it isn't that we turn into a superhero somehow. It's the transformation of our inner person. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, Paul says. And ultimately, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's not to stand up on the platform and give a a tongue interpretation, a prophecy, or something like that, or to, you know, twirl around or whatever you might want to do. You can do that too. But ultimately, to be filled with the Spirit, it's beholding the glory of the Lord and being changed into His likeness. Now, remember what John told us. John said... John chapter 1, verse 14, he said he saw the glory of God in Jesus. But just think for a moment. Where was the greatest manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus? It wasn't when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't when he uh, took a little boy's loaf and fishes and fed thousands of people with it. The greatest manifestation of the glory of God was when Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. But hanging on the cross, he was controlling the entire course of human history. You know, we can go looking for the glory in some strange places. And uh, those of us who are charismatic, if you don't know what that means, don't bother. Uh, we can chase extraordinary manifestations. And uh, we, 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 I admit it, uh, and, uh, you know, I'd love to see a visible cloud of the manifestation of the glory of God like Moses saw. And God can do it if he wants to. But really, the glory God is looking for is the glory of Christ in our inner man and our, in our inner woman. That's the image of Christ. It's the likeness of Christ. It's when you and I actually begin to look like Jesus. And of course, the glory of God in you and me is manifest the same way it was in Him. It's when we take up our cross and follow Him. It's when we lay down our lives for those around us. It's when we receive God's love and give it away. We were in the Toronto, 25 years ago, and involved heavily in an outpouring of the Holy Spirit there. And as the Holy Spirit was being outpoured and refreshing people from around the world, the pastor 
had a thing written on the wall of the church to walk in God's love and give it away. It's not about manifestations of the Spirit. It's about walking in God's love and giving it away. That's the glory because that's when Jesus gets manifest. So I don't want to discourage you from believing that you may see a cloud of glory appearing one day, but that's actually not what Paul meant by beholding the glory, even though that's what the Jews would have thought. But think about this. Think about this Antioch Church Indianapolis this morning. Did I get that right? Thank you, Jesus. Okay. If not, a buzzer would go off and I would disappear through a hole in the platform. Okay. Think about this. Here's what it is leading up to. The glory of God that appeared on Mount Sinai, that manifest presence that they couldn't even approach the foot of the mountain, let alone go up it. It was that terrifying and awesome. The glory of God that appeared in the tabernacle. The glory of God that was manifest in Jesus. What he's saying here in 2 Corinthians 3 is that that glory resides now in you and me. As men and women who are following Jesus. The presence of God is no longer restricted to one place, a little cubicle place, where once a year only one man could enter it on pain of death. The presence of God is now released in the earth wherever men and women encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are one man... One woman, mobile tabernacles of the Holy Ghost. And what that means is that you can go into your college, you can go into your place of employment, you can go into your neighborhood, you can go into wherever you are as a mobile tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. You don't need the elders or the pastor to do it for you. You are all tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. You are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You all represent Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of the release of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. The whole of the Bible. I mustn't go down this bunny trail. The whole of the Bible. Jesus, help me. The whole of the, the, whole of the Bible is about the loss and restoration of the presence of God. Uh, we, the, the presence of God that was there in the Garden of Eden, that was removed through our disobedience, then it reappeared in just infinitesimal forms at an altar here or there that Jacob or somebody else had. And then it, was, it was, became more permanent, but only in that one little cubicle, the one man once a year. And then on the day of Pentecost, something in the temple of God in heaven that the Apostle John saw in Revelation 4, 5, 7, and 14, something of the temple of God in heaven fell out on the city of Jerusalem. And that suddenly the presence of God, the temple became us. 
That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He, he is the manna. He is the new Sabbath. He is the new temple. We don't need another temple to be rebuilt. Never will be rebuilt. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of every prophecy of the Old Testament. And we are in Him. And so every prophecy of the Old Testament is fulfilled in you and me today. And you carry the presence of Almighty God with you. You can, you, it's great. The elders are commanded to lay hands on the sick. If anyone among you be sick, let him come and the, let the elders of the church pray and so on. The elders are commanded, but you too can pray for the sick. Because you carry the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. You can witness to people. You can pray for people's situations. You can be Christ to them and represent Christ to them wherever you are. That's the release of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the glory of God among God's people. And even our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning, they're in such terrible suffering. The presence of Almighty God and the glory is there. We're created to bring the glory wherever we go. The glory begins in transformed lives. And it spills out into the whole wonderful kaleidoscope of the work of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders and miracles and all of that. And it's all laid out for us in Scripture. So that the Word of God and the Spirit of God mesh together seamlessly in the manifestation of the glory of God among His people. And as we become more and more like Christ, the glory will only increase. And one day it will translate us in the twinkling of an eye into a glorious resurrection body. Like that of Jesus. Before he died, shortly before he died, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British preacher, uh, in his final illness, said to his family members, he said, don't hold me back from the glory. It's coming. The glory he preached about all of his life, he sensed was approaching. I was in uh, Goshen, Indiana, about, oh, I can't remember, six or seven years ago, and an older saint took me aside and said, I want to tell you a story. He said, it's an old Mennonite lady, and she recently uh, had passed away, and in her hospital bed, she had uh, fallen into a coma, and they had gathered family members and people from the church around and in the Mennonite tradition were singing hymns. She'd been in a coma for four days. And the family was all gathered around in that moment. And suddenly, her eyes opened, her hands went up to, toward heaven, and she said, I see the gates and they're open. And in that moment, her hands fell back and she passed into the presence of the Lord. And as I told that story around the world to different places, I found the same thing reported by other people. We're translated from one degree of glory into another. So this life is just a preparation for what God has for us. But until that day comes, saints, behold him. Follow him. Take up your cross. Walk in his love. And give it away.
And know this, if you do that, the glory will come.